reading this morning is from Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. If you can turn to that passage uh, that was read to us earlier from uh, Luke's Gospel in chapter 10, that would be helpful. It's particularly Mary and Martha I want to look at this morning, uh, so verse 38 onwards. I'm going to turn on my phone. One of the advantages of having a teenage son in the congregation is that he tells me how long I've preached for. Um, and so as he's not here this morning, I'm going to set a stopwatch to keep, um, keep an eye. Good. Um, thank you for your welcome. Gospel greetings from the Bay Church. Uh, we appreciate you as a fellowship. Uh, I got a lot of time for Matt. He's been very kind and good to me uh, in a difficult season of life, and I'm very grateful for him. And there are friends of ours I did spot. I've lost them now, um, here in the church as well, so other connections. But um, we're, we're glad to have you partnering with us. We're glad to partner with you uh, in the gospel. Um, here's a book plug, a book that I enjoyed. It was a book called, by a chap called Hugh Martin. Uh, the book is called Abiding Presence. At the beginning of the book, he sort of maps out what the book is all about, uh, he takes the first bit of Matthew's gospel, he takes the end of Matthew's gospel, and he's telling us in this book that the gospels are much more than simply a biography of Jesus. They're much more than just telling us the story 
Jesus, at the end of the biography, Jesus, at the end of the book, says, Lo, I'm with you to the very end of the age. So the Jesus that we meet in the passages of Scripture, the, the, the Jesus that we meet in the Gospels, the Jesus that we see interacting with people is the one that we have day to day with us. Always. To the very end of the age. So we're not just studying a book and getting to know our Savior, our brother, our King, and our friend. The Jesus that we meet in today's passage, just a, a tiny glimpse, just a few verses in Luke's massive gospel, will give us a glimpse into our Savior, Lord, and friend. Martin says, the biography then is not dead. The living one lives in it. And so it's an abiding presence. It should encourage us today that this is more than a study of knowledge about who Jesus is and what he is all about. But it's us finding him, being reminded of him, and walking with him. Can I pray along those lines? Good God of heaven, do that work today in us, we pray. Help us understand that this is a living book, inspired by your Holy Spirit, that your people may be fed and built up, that the gospel may go out in power. Lord Jesus, reveal yourself to us in the sacred page today, we pray. Meet us in our innermost beings, we ask, for your glory and our delight. Amen. When Jesus replies to Martha, he tells her, Mary has chosen the good portion. ESV brings that translation out a little bit better. Good portion. He seems to be playing on words. Martha is busy making food, while Mary's been eating it. Mary's been feeding. She's been tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. It reminds us at the very outset of our consideration of this passage today that Jesus supplies us with food. He feeds us. He's the bread of life. He's to be tasted. He's to be experienced. He's to be gulped. There's a common understanding of this passage, which has been the subject of articles and books and numerous conference talks. And the idea is that this passage has the two elements of Christian life, or, or more extreme, has two personality types. The life of the activist and the doer in Martha, and then the life of the contemplative learner in Mary. You might already be telling that I'm not too fond of that. I'm not really sure that we can read that much into these two ladies' personality types from this passage. I think we're ignoring some of the context that tells us what this passage is all about. For instance, if, if Martha is meant to be the activist doer, do we, do we know whether she had a quiet time in that morning? Had she herself been particularly contemplative and serious and sitting down and reading and thinking and praying? We don't really know what Mary had been doing the rest of that day. Perhaps she'd been particularly active dealing with all sorts of waifs and strays. We need to be careful that we don't read ourselves and our own personality type too quickly into the page of Scripture. But first sit back and let Scripture speak to us. Let's find Christ in the passage first and then understand how he speaks to us. Personally, I don't want to hammer anyone's precious uh, understandings of this passage. Personally, I don't think we've got enough knowledge of either of these women, women to make this generalization. In other passages of Scripture, I think they strike us as very similar characters. Also, if the major takeaway is, of this passage is that the 
contemplative, quiet, reflective life is better than serving and doing it, it seems to clash with the context, doesn't it? That's why I asked for the Good Samaritan parable to be read. Go and do likewise. Go and be like that guy. Notice who were the bad guys in the story. Contemplative thinkers. Religious leaders. People whose day job it is to spend time sitting down and reading the word. So let's try and come to this passage with, with fresh eyes. With that expectation that Christ will meet us in the page. Uh, firstly, I want you to spot a, a silent scandal. I think one thing that will help us approach this passage in a fresh way will, will be if we can catch sight of this scandal. I say catch sight because there are no sounds yet. There are no sounds. It's something silent because it involves Mary. I don't know if you noticed, but Mary is silent throughout the account. Martha's got plenty to say, but, but Mary's quiet. No record of what she's got to say about what's going on. Verse 39, and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. It doesn't sound particularly scandalous, does it? If we look at that scene, particularly in the, in the surroundings of a primary school, perhaps we've got a primary school type scene in front of us where a teacher is at the front of the class uh, reading a story to the children and the children are sat around her feet. Well, that's probably a helpful image. In Jesus' time, it was something not just that little children did, but what disciples did before their teachers. Later in in Luke's second book of Acts, we read of Paul, and we're told of him that he's educated at the feet of Gamaliel. There's a description of the training that Paul has gone through. It's shorthand for saying what Paul has been busy, what his credentials are, what his training is. He's been a disciple of Gamaliel. That's who he is. That's his credential. It's a position of humility. You're the teacher and I'm at your feet, receiving from you, learning from you, following you. And see, in that verse, Mary's at the Lord's feet. And what it's communicating to us is not just her physical proximity, not just where she sat, but what she's actively doing. It communicates submission. This is a voice of authority. This is the place I want to be. This is the person I want to be listening to. I identify with him. He is my rabbi. I am his. And he is mine. It still doesn't seem very scandalous, does it? But that would be because it's the context in which we're reading it. The culture in which we're in, our position in history, means the scandal is a bit harder to spot. Mary is in a very male context. She's in a very male space. I don't know how many of you know the, uh, the, the folktale, the Chinese folktale Mulan, popularized in a Disney film. It's a story about a woman in a man's world, a woman who's brave and courageous and has a strong sense of uh, honor towards her family. But has to disguise herself as a man to, to fight. Mary does no such thing. No disguise, no pretense. There's a boldness, a a simplicity to her discipleship. What does 
discipleship mean? What's Luke been saying in his gospel so far about what it means to sit at Jesus' feet, to follow him, to be a disciple? Well, the beginning of chapter 10, being a disciple of Jesus doesn't sound particularly contemplative. You go. You go in my name. You go with my authority. You go and you preach the gospel. You go out. In chapter 8, we've got a a list of women who are part of the mission, part of uh, Jesus' crowd and following. Soon afterwards, he went through uh, cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. These women aren't just present. They're proactive in keeping this mission moving and giving their money towards uh, the program that Jesus is following. And here she is. Here's my Lord. He is my King. This is the best place for me at his feet. Why shouldn't she be there? In this culture, it was a male space. A first century Jewish rabbi with a woman at his feet. She's in a male-only zone. And she's identifying as one of his disciples. In a seat of learning. It's different from our culture. It's hard, perhaps, for us to see the scandal, but for the first readers of this text, it's a scandalous scene. Why is it recorded? I don't think Luke is particularly interested in scandal for scandal's sake. He's not like a tabloid news journalist who's looking to shock for the sake of it. No, he's got a purpose. There's a message behind the scene. Jesus is a rabbi. He's a teacher like no other. His ministry, his kingdom breaks cultural molds. It's not confined to the rules, the conventions of the day. It's a good thing, isn't it, that there's distinction between the genders. That's part of the way God has made this world. But that good thing, that distinction has become a bad thing in this culture. It it has separated people. The difference between the two has led to suppression of women by men. And here is Jesus liberating women. We're to see them as part of the movement, belonging, engaged, involved. We need to notice what a radical book we're holding. The Good Samaritan parable is a radical parable. Luke is recording a story where the religious elites, the religious leaders... They're the bad guys. They've got it wrong. They've gone the wrong way. They're not the ones to follow. And now in the next passage, he has this woman as the hero of the story, entering into the space and being welcomed there. Conventions are being turned upside down. Again and again in Luke's gospel, Luke is showing us that Jesus is interested in the marginalized, those who are forgotten, those who are misunderstood and ignored in this world. Jesus has got room for them. He welcomes them at his feet. So if you 
feel like you're in that category. If you feel marginalized, if you feel on the outside, then part of what Jesus is saying to you in this passage is that there's room at my feet for you. Come and sit. Come and belong to me. It's also a challenge for us who belong to a dominant culture. Do you make space for those who are outside? Do you make space for their voice? Are you interested in them like your Savior is? Are you willing to cross cultural boundaries for his sake? When you read of the marginalized in our communities, do you pray that the Lord would help you to welcome them? I want to move from the scandalous scene into a a sibling squabble. We've just been looking at something that's quite different in our culture. Now we're going to look at something which probably transcends every culture. Siblings fighting. I said I grew up in a, in a fairly full home. It's my experience that siblings fight and squabble. I wonder how many siblings have squabbled even this morning on the way to church. A brother or sister feeling angry with what their other sibling has done and in response either taken a swipe at that brother or sister, or if they don't think that's going to work out in their favor, has gone, Mom, Dad. Luke gives us all the details we need to see this squabble in detail. It's Martha's house. Did you notice that? And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She welcomed him. She's the host She opens the door. She's being a a good, hospitable host. We presume that she is the older sibling and taking that role and taking that responsibility. Now, we just saw that Mary's actions were were shocking. Martha's actions are not. She's doing everything that is expected of her. She's busying herself with the duties, preparing food for Jesus and whomever else might have come along with him. She's doing good work. She's serving him. And that's not the problem. Now I want to try and get you into Martha's shoes, into her position. You're a host. An honored guest has come, and and so you have a sense of responsibility. You love Jesus, and you recognize that he is a special gift from God, and you want to serve God and serve Jesus in the way that you welcome him into your home. You want to do that well to the best of your ability. You're working hard, slaving over a hot stove, baking the bread, pouring the wine, stirring the stew. As you begin, as you continue, you get increasingly overwhelmed. Luke tells us she's distracted. I'm not very experienced in the kitchen myself, but I can imagine the, the pressure, the different things that need to occur, different things that need to happen. Distraction. She becomes focused on her duties. The overriding focus is on all that she must do. And as she does, she, she perhaps calls out to Mary before she comes to Jesus. No response. She tries a bit louder and, and then tries to go and find her. Where is she? Why isn't she helping? Why isn't she con- contributing? Eventually, she spots her. The scandalous scene that we've just looked at, she sees, and there's a whole other degree of scandal She should be with me. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then 
to help me? Martha asks this question in a way that demands an answer. And demands the answer, yes. She's absolutely convinced she's in the right. And that her case is completely justified. I just want to slow down on that, those couple of sentences that she speaks. I wonder if you can be honest enough with yourself and see yourself in this. Do you do this when you get upset, stressed, and worried? Do you not care? What's she doing there? It's an emotional pull, isn't it? It's accusatory. It's getting someone on side. If you cared, you'll go with me. Where I'm taking this argument, where I'm taking this line, where I'm taking this accusation, you'll come with me. Don't you care that my sister, Mum, Dave hit me. Blame. The finger comes out and points automatically to someone else. This is what she wants Jesus to care about. The wrong of someone else. Pointing out the sin, pointing out the problem in someone else. Slow to look and consider their own sin. Slow to look and consider themselves. Quick to point the finger at someone else. Don't you care that my sister has left me? Don't you care about this tragedy? Don't you care about how unfair this is? She's in the middle of this story, isn't she? She's the victim. She's self-centered. She has left me to serve. She justifies herself, justifies her own activity to Jesus to, again, get him on board, get him to understand really where the, the line of fairness is to serve me alone. I've been left alone in this. All the pressure is on me. And now she moves on to the crunch. Tell her then to help me. There's nothing in that, Jesus, that you can argue with. It's a watertight argument. Tell her then to help me. She demands action. She's got it all sewn up in her mind. She knows exactly what needs to happen. I wonder if any of that sounds familiar. I'm sure you're thinking of examples of other people doing stuff like that, but I wonder if you can be honest enough with yourself to realize that you and I do it too. You become so focused on all that you need to achieve, all that you need to do. You become distracted. You, you, you lose perspective. You become so conscious of another's behavior, it, it incenses you. It sends you over the edge and you burst out with all sorts of accusations. You tell yourself and anyone else who will listen all about the pressure that you're under, all about the good that you've done. You justify yourself. You keep telling yourself the same story in which you're either the victim or the hero. And I'm not saying that we're never a victim. I'm certainly not saying that we should never talk about our anxieties or the pressures that we're under. I'm asking us to consider what a passage like this does in, in terms of examining our own hearts. How we react and respond to hard times can reveal really what is going on in our innermost being what we feel we deserve in this world, what we think is right, how we think God should rule the universe, who we think God should accept and approve of, and who we think he should judge and punish. 
Martha is speaking to Jesus. And she's demanding that he gets on her side and follows her wishes. We've looked at a scene. We've looked at a squabble. And what we really need now is to hear our Savior speak. Speak, Savior, speak. It's all been set up for Jesus, hasn't it? Martha has pitched the ball perfectly. All he needs to do is take a a big swing. Of course I care. Mary, get on with you. You're not supposed to be here anyway. Get in the kitchen and help your sister. The way the question has been asked demands a a positive answer. That Jesus is going to correct Martha is not what's expected. And yet notice how Jesus begins. Martha. Martha. It's hard to know how to read those words, isn't it? But normally in the culture, repeating the name twice is a sign of intimacy, a sign of kindness and love. Think of when there's that powerful warning elsewhere in the Gospels where Jesus says, people will come at the last day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do all sorts of things in your name? What's he saying there? He's saying that the people are are pretending they had an intimate walk with the Lord. They're confident in their activity and their service. And what does Jesus say? I never knew you. This intimacy that you're pretending is not real, is not genuine. This Lord, Lord, this repetition of the name that they come up with is a false intimacy. But here, Jesus isn't being false. This is genuine intimacy. This is love for Martha. Martha, Martha. He loves her. And he wants her to know it. It took me about 15 years of marriage to realize that my wife wouldn't automatically know that I love her. Every now and then I might need to tell her. Jesus is communicating in this moment, this moment of high pressure and anxiety. I love you. Martha, Martha. You are anxious and troubled about many things. He doesn't ignore what consumes Martha. He doesn't direct the finger straight at her. He recognizes her trouble. He, he recognizes the anxiety. He recognizes the trial, if you like. However trifling, however small, it's consumed her, hasn't it? And because it's consumed her, he's concerned for her. As Jesus speaks like this to Martha... Can you hear him speaking to you? I think I know about three of you in the room by name. So I don't know any of you. I can't speak to you in this way. I don't know what kind of day you've had or what kind of week you've had, what kind of pressures or trials that you're under, what kind of things are distracting you and taking you away from feeding on Christ today, what kind of worries or concerns are in your heart. But he does. He did then in that room, and he does now in this room. He's an abiding presence. The same Jesus we meet in this passage is available to us today. And so can you hear your name? Can you hear him speaking your name? You are anxious and troubled about many things. I know you are. I see them. I know your pain. It's not new information that you're giving me. 
I know the trial. I know the season that you're going through. I know the suffering. I, I know the pressure. I know you. But he doesn't leave it there, does he? There is intimacy. There is kindness. There is acknowledgement of the pressure. And that's where a lot of us leave the conversation. We're able to speak to one another of love. We're, we're able perhaps to recognize the pain other people are in, but Jesus crosses a, another barrier. It doesn't mean there's no correction. It doesn't mean there's no change required in our heart. But one thing is necessary. There is an ultimate thing, Jesus is saying. There is something all important. There is something essential. There are many things which are good. There are many things which are proper. But there's one thing that is essential. Don't let those other things have your heart. Don't let them fill your soul. Don't let blessings captivate you completely. Don't let trials crush you utterly. Don't let duties distract you from the main thing. One thing is necessary. I alone am necessary. Here comes the blow, the real blow. If you are one of those siblings and you've gone to your mum or to your dad, mum, dad, and you've given your case, you've tried to explain it as best you can, obviously, to get the decision to go your way. And what you're really wanting is the parent to come down on, the, on your side and, to, and for that sibling to be in trouble. You want that complete support. You might settle for 50-50. My dad always used to say, Tweedledum and Tweedledee. And then one of us, whoever was quickest off the mark, would go, he's dumb. And then it would all start again. You might settle for 50-50. Your parents just separating you both. You're both as bad as each other. It's six of one or half a dozen of the other. But what you really don't want to hear is, your sister has done well. Learn from her. I don't know what this feels like, but especially when it's a younger sibling who's done well. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. What is Jesus saying here? I think it's the key. That's why I started with it. He said it at the beginning. I said it at the beginning. It's, it's a play on words. Mary has the meal. Martha's busy making one. Mary's been sat feasting while Martha's been cooking. As good as Martha's work is, it mustn't consume her. The food that she's lovingly making will be eaten and be a blessing for sure, but it will eventually go off and spoil. The food that Mary is eating is, is not going anywhere. It never can be taken from her. Martha has become the center of her service of Jesus. That's a short sentence, but it, it needs to land. Martha has become the center of her service of Jesus. Service can do that. Speaking as a pastor and as a preacher, someone whose job it is to read the scriptures, to pray and to preach and to tell people about Jesus, I'm confessing to you that I'm able to do that job without being rooted in Christ. I'm not really able to do it, but I'm able to try and do it. 
we can become consumed with our own service, whatever that element of service is. It becomes about us. And Christ, our Savior, is removed from the middle of it. So Martha has become the center of her service of Jesus, while Jesus remains the center of Mary's discipleship. What distracts you? What frustrates you? What makes you anxious? Is any of it taking you away from he who is ultimate, the necessary one? The Lord of the universe has come into this home. He's made himself at home there to to bless it. And the Lord of the universe has come into this world and he's come into our lives. He's welcomed himself into our lives. Are we going to sit and feed upon him? Are we going to taste and see that the Lord is good? Are we going to enjoy him? That doesn't mean that you cease to be active. Surely the context of Luke is a, is a book of movement, is a book of activity, is, is a book of action. But you ensure your activities don't take you away from Christ. Mary has made an excellent choice. It's not an easy one, is it? Martha thought Mary's life looked easy in comparison but to be an active listener, to sit and receive the words of Christ, to sit under his teaching, isn't an easy place to be. Take up your cross and and follow me. The world hates you, it hated me first. Love your neighbor as yourself, forgive your enemies. (laughs) These aren't easy things to apply in our lives, are they? Uh, to sit at the feet of Jesus, to, to be his follower, we need to accept some harsh truths about ourselves. I'm a sinner. When I, I was asked about myself, probably what I should have said. The truest words about me. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner in a great need of a savior. I'm a creature completely dependent on my creator. I am weak, but he is strong. I'm foolish, and he is wise. I'm sitting at the feet of the rabbi. I'm recognizing that he is the source of wisdom, and and I need to hear from him. He is the source of life, and I need to sit under him. I am evil. Jesus describes us in that way. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. I'm evil and he is good. I have a great debt before God and he alone can pay it. Calvary's tree is the only place where I can be reconciled to God, to be friends with him again. I'm held in a grip. There are temptations, there are things in my life that have a hold on me. And I'm, and I'm weak in that grip. I'm not able to tear them away. He alone can free me. And so the best place is to be at his feet, feeding on his word. Are you feeding on him? Do you have that good portion that will not be taken away? It's a free meal from the hands of Christ. That's one of the things sometimes we can confuse in in our service of Christ, that we can think somehow that we've eventually over time and effort and energy and money, we somehow began to pay something back and contribute to the offering. But it's a free gift. His are the only hands that can give this meal. 
the hands that flung stars into space to cruel nails surrendered, those hands offer freely the bread of life. And don't let the distraction, trials, anxieties, or even Christian service, good service, rob you of that feast. Fight. Fight to sit at the feet of Jesus and feed upon him. And this portion will not be taken away. Amen. May God bless his word. I'm going to pray, and then I think we're going to sing. Good God of heaven, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for these records of his life that we have. Uh, We thank you, Lord God, that they are reliable testimonies of these real human interactions that Jesus had with people just like us, living lives just like us, in a different culture and time and place, and yet, Lord, human through and through. We thank you that he was human through and through and was able to speak so kindly and compassionately to Martha, even words of uh, correction. We pray, mighty God, that we would be ready to receive such words, that we would hear, hear them from a Savior who loves us and whose love has been proven, uh, that, he was, that he would take uh, our place on the cross of Calvary. We pray, God of heaven, that you would help us to take what Christ is offering, the bread of life. And having tasted that meal, Lord God, we would fight to sit at the feet of Jesus. Cause us then to feed upon him the bread of life for your glory. Amen.